You're listening to In Technology, your source for trends about security, sustainability, and technology. Hi, and welcome to In Technology. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and I'm joined by my co-host, Camille Morehart. And Camille, I've been in a reflective mood lately. I guess it's the feeling that hits most of us at the end of the year, but I was thinking back on an article you and I wrote just about a year ago, anticipating the trends for 2022. Yeah, in the tech world, that can be a tricky proposition. Yeah, exactly. But it's also a useful exercise for us to see where we've come from and and where we're headed. I'd like to do that in this episode of In Technology. And as far as looking back part goes, on at least one 2022 trend, we nailed it. And that was predicting that artificial intelligence or AI would move beyond hype and play a bigger part in computing and cybersecurity. It's good to know that the uh, crystal ball was working in one respect. Although I have to say, I think it's cheating a little bit to predict that AI is going to be playing a bigger role. I think that we ended up having a lot of conversations that got into some of the intricacies of AI and how it works and broke it down rather than this monolithic term that encompasses almost absolutely everything right now. We looked at specific things and applications of it. Um, And one of those is I remember speaking with our colleague, Rita Wuhabi, about how her team here at Intel worked in a partnership with Audi to look at improving manufacturing processes in their factories. Yeah, I remember that. And you are right. It is kind of unfair to say we nailed AI like we were the first ones to really call (laughs) that one. But we did nail a few things uh, with regards to the details. And to your point, we've spoken to a number of other researchers in this area around AI for threat detection and security. And, you know, one episode that stuck with me was when you spoke with Ashwin Ram from Google about what people call interactive AI. Ashwin is the director of AI in the office of CTO at Google. Uh, His work focuses on natural language processing, which for those unfamiliar with the term is basically teaching AI to mimic conversation and language use. A good example of this is how text apps on your cell phone and other programs can predict what we might want to type. Probably all experience this where you you talk and all of a sudden the computer fills in what you are about to say. Well, that's what we're talking about here. And I think that topic on its own is interesting. But what especially caught my attention in your conversation was that a lot of AI systems interact to make this happen. Yeah, it's true. So teams like Ashwin's are feeding a bunch of different AI systems with data from like books and videos and phone conversation. And of course, it extends beyond language. And it goes to gathering information from smart home devices, which can even figure out, you know, which light to turn on or off based on what room you're in or what time of day it is. Similarly, with autonomous cars, having sensors that can provide the ability to make a decision A lot of those adjustments around the edges or customizations as to how you would reply remain private and specific to your own phone and customized to you. But of course, they're also sending back learnings to a central model. And some of these kinds of topics really get into that intersection and delicate balance between privacy and utility, right? And so he talks about that. So that's an example of a larger problem that sometimes is called the filter bubble when you read news, for example, on a news feed online, when you listen to, to radio and typing on the phone and other things, as these personalization models get better and better at modeling you, 
they get also better and better at filtering out things that you wouldn't want to see. But in doing so, they're also now restricting and in some sense narrowing you into a filter bubble. You're living in a little bubble world of your own with very little peripheral vision into what, what else is going on. So to avoid that, algorithms need to be designed in ways that do allow a little bit of what in machine learning we call exploration, addition to exploitation, building on what we already know about you. So following low-risk, tried-and-tested route, you also want to be experimenting a little bit and exploring other alternatives. How much you explore versus exploit depends on the use case. If you're typing uh, and your job is to get this thing typed and move on to other things and it's not important enough, maybe more exploitation is fine. Once in a while, you might type something different. But most of the time is right, let's just move on to something else. If you're reading news, you sure as hell do want a broader viewpoint because otherwise we just end up with more and more segmented viewpoints of people that never talk to each other. People have a confirmation bias. They like to read what they already believe. So depending on the application, we can tweak these trade-offs and give you the kind of broader worldview that you would like while still helping you expeditiously on the path that you probably are going to take. That was Ashwin Ram from Google. And you know, Camille, what Ashwin is talking about is obviously more consumer-based, but filter bubbles are an issue for companies using AI, and it relates to the issue of bias. And that's something AI data scientists have told us they're trying to address. They're thinking more about what data they're gathering and from who, what conclusions the AI is reaching, and could there be bias there? Yeah, and we've actually delved into some leading-edge conversations with respect to bias. One of them was a conversation on indigenous data sovereignty that I really think everybody should take a listen to. And another is I spoke with Ria Cheruvu after she landed at the keynote at the Intel Innovation Summit in September. And she's 18 years old and she's Intel's AI ethics lead architect. So very impressive person. In fact, our CEO introduced her as I think the future CEO. But I asked her about a lot of different topics in AI, also about whether discussions about bias are having a real world impact. With AI, you know, we have a sense of the different overarching disciplines, reinforcement learning, supervised learning, unsupervised, right? We're, we're able to categorize it fairly nicely. For responsible AI and AI ethics, we're just getting there. We do want to have hierarchies of prioritization and levels with which we use to decide what AI model needs to have more stringent ethical AI guardrails we can put it as uh, compared to another. And, and that is really based off of risks and harms in terms of analyzing the ethical implications of the system on society. Then again, in and of itself, those methodologies and the definitions and frameworks that we use to figure that out, that's still under debate. Uh, if you use one metric or definition in order to, for example, identify fairness or bias of a system, you could accidentally, if you're optimizing for that fairness metric, accidentally exacerbate another. But putting aside those problems, there is definitely a prioritization level or a risk level. And I think Personally, the European Commission's proposal on AI does a great job of, of doing the categorization. You know, having that delineation based on the use case of AI systems and how it builds up over time, that's definitely very useful. For example, AI being used for determining access to employment or to education is definitely has very, very big ethical implications and probably um, should be constrained very much. 
Whereas if we see the use case of AI in games or for like Instagram filters, probably don't need that much of a constraint. AI in healthcare, you know, we can start to think about the different obligations that we might need for chatbots or similar types of use cases. And definitely they have their own risks and harms associated with them. We want to treat them differently uh, depending on the types of implications and harms that they can bring up. That was Ria Cherivu, AI Ethics Lead Architect at Intel. Well, Camille, we reveled in our trend prediction success so far in this episode, but I'd like to switch gears and look forward to what might be in store for 2023. Do you have anything in technology, security, or sustainability that you're keeping an eye on for next year? Yeah, actually, what I'm really interested in is it seems like as we've progressed through the year, just more and more commonly, those three topics turn out to be completely interdependent. Very difficult to separate them, ultimately. I think as some of our regular listeners have noticed, we've actually specifically added sustainability and technology to the mix of topics on the podcast. So we're really exploring that intersection. And One of the things that we talked about is this movement around sustainable software or sometimes known as green software. When you say green as it relates to software, what exactly does that mean? I'm familiar with hardware and the chip world, and I know part of the focus there has been on using less energy to do the same amount of work at the same rate. Is that what you mean? Well, to be honest, I wasn't 100% sure what it meant either because software in and of itself, it's not a physical product. So I was like, how does it go green? And I also had some guesses. So I reached out to Asim Hussain, who is Director of Green Software Engineering at Intel. And he's also the co-founder of Green Software Foundation. And I asked him to define the term. And we will be airing that on an upcoming What That Means episode in the next few months. So here's a little preview. So there's multiple different ways you can think about being green when it comes to software. One way you can think about it is building software to make the world more sustainable. For instance, you could build software which does farming in a more you know, environmentally good way. Or you can acknowledge that software itself is an emitter of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. And how do you actually reduce the emissions that software itself is responsible for. And that's how we define green software, software which really takes responsibility for its own emissions and tries to minimize that or eliminate as much of that as possible. Emission, huh? That's interesting. And I guess considering all the software we each use in our daily lives, changes like green software could have a huge impact. Well, Awesome did give me some context for that. So for example, he's saying that if we look at software used on machines that are running electricity, for example, he's saying we've got 80% of electricity in the world created by burning coal. So any kind of a reduction that you can create in use of electricity is going to help reduce the production of that electricity. So I, I am interested to see in the coming year what kind of sustainable software or green software comes around. Yeah, that's a good one, Camille. So I'm going to be looking forward to that one. Well, for my 2023 prediction, I'm going to put my neck out there and say, I think quantum computing is something to keep an eye on. I'm going to challenge you, Tom, because I think that sounds like saying AI is is moving past the hype circle. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, I'm really big on being right on these prediction shows. So yeah, <laughs> let's just broaden that focus. <laughs> it's so simple to call, but I have to clarify what I'm saying. It's not because I think we're going to have quantum computers next year. You know, great minds of working on creating computers that can solve what we currently can't solve and doing it in less time. But most predict we're still years away from that. What I'm thinking about is quantum attacks. Right. So if someone designs a quantum computer that can figure out how to decipher encryption and access all of our sensitive data that's currently using secure protocols. Exactly. Now, people may be saying, why worry about something that's years away? Well, to that, I'll get on my cybersecurity soapbox and say, you can't undo an attack. And once it happens, you're stuck. And I'm not the only one that feels that way, particularly when it comes to quantum computing. Earlier this year, we spoke with Michele Mosca, co-founder, president, and CEO of Evolution Q. I asked him about this issue of don't worry about it till it comes. And here's what he had to say. That's not the right analysis. At the very least, you need some mechanism for updating of the cryptography to be resilient to these emerging quantum attacks. And really, so do I need to worry? In most cases, the answer now is yes. That doesn't mean panic. It doesn't mean you have to deploy something. You have to ship the crypto tomorrow, but it means you better be well on your way of those four stages to quantum readiness, which is understand what, what it means. And then the second one is what does it mean to you? The third phase is plan, right? And the fourth phase is deployment. That's when you're shipping new product, which has these quantum-resistant methods baked in. I think with any moderately important system, uh, you really have to be well on your way in entering that third phase of, of planning and readiness. And furthermore, a lot of the hacking we see today, people are exploiting generic software bugs. But if you mess up the cryptography, that's a really bad piece of software to mess up. You don't need some sophisticated criminal service that, it, that it hacks into quantum computers. Mundane attack vectors can, can get in. That is perhaps at least as worrisome as the risk of quantum-enabled attacks. Again, that was Michele Mosca, CEO of Evolution Q. So Tom, is your hope that this issue gets on more people's radars next year? You bet. I think we'll be hearing more in the coming year about innovations and advances in quantum. So I expect that. And along with that, discussions and maybe even some tools to address security. Yeah, I'd also like to add that if people want to learn more about quantum computing in general, because it is a term that gets thrown around a lot that people often don't take time to sort of define and really describe the implications. This was a great episode to get up to speed on the topic. And we can also put some links to the episodes we've highlighted today in the show notes. Yeah, there was a lot of you know conversations about forests and trees and other things <laughs> that weren't technical in any way, but they help you understand the concept of quantum computing. You know, and and by the way, while we're talking about it, we didn't have it here in this clip show, but I did want to highlight what I thought to be at the end of the year here. What was the coolest episode of the entire year? And that was the interview you did, Camille with Yosha Bach. And you both talked about machine consciousness. And so I just want to throw that out there to all the listeners, the idea of a machine having consciousness or 
or not having consciousness in this case, but what were the ethical things that, that would arise out of that whole dilemma? Subsequent to that conversation, I interviewed, well, we just mentioned it in this episode, but Ria Cherivu on AI and ethics. And I asked her for her perspective on machine consciousness. And then I also asked Yulia Sandemirskaya, who is a colleague and peer of Yosha Box, and she's also in Intel Labs doing robotics. And I asked her her perspective of machine consciousness. They each have a little bit different perspective on it. They all have an interesting approach to how you would think about it, right? N- n- none of them says, okay, this is an absolute no way, or this is an absolute yes, right? Each one comes with an interesting perspective of how would you come to determine that, right? It's not about proving it or disproving it in this very specific case. It's like, we have to think about things like that. This is just sort of a crazy concept that we actually have to think about for real. (laughs) Yeah. Which is why I thought it was such an incredible episode because it's not just a simple black and white, right or wrong. It's not at all clear how you would even know and how would you go about trying to answer that question? So we just want to put a plug in there and I thought you did a great job on it. So there you go. Thank you, Tom. You bet. All right, Camille. So bringing it back to the predictions that we have for this show, we put our flags in the ground with green software and quantum computing. And I'll add to that now machine consciousness. And I guess we'll just have to wait till next year to see if we're right. Yeah. And I think we'll just continue rolling out the conversations on uh, getting into the details of AI and some of the intersection points. So we've got stuff coming up on deep fake, static diffusion, synthetic data. And then we're going to be looking at this intersection of, for example, sustainability and AI. So one thing is looking at how we use artificial intelligence to locate mineral deposits that can be used for batteries that we need in electric cars and things like that. Yeah, there's so many incredible topics that we're going to be bringing in next year. I think it's super, super exciting. So thank you listeners for tuning in every week and we wish you all a happy and healthy 2023. Stay tuned for the next episode of In Technology and follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation. Intel Corporation.